Let's talk oral surgery. This is Marcus Huang. So, some housekeeping. There are times in this episode where I might be a little bit off my game, and that is because I got my second dose of the COVID vaccine today, a couple hours prior to recording the show. And the rumors are true. You do feel a little bit of cognitive fogging, you do get some fevers. I immediately noticed some nasal congestion as well, and you can probably tell from my voice. I still think that the benefits of getting the vaccine truly outweighs the costs. And so, this isn't medical advice, but I do encourage you all to get vaccinated if possible and if it is within reach, especially if you are seeing patients not for your own safety, but also for the patients. I just finished my internal medicine rotation and I saw so many patients admitted for COVID and the associated complications, and it changed my perspective of how severe COVID infections can actually be. And I hope by the time this podcast goes on air that more and more of the public are able to get the vaccine as well. I think a lot of my friends who are in tech or in non-healthcare professions are eagerly waiting for the vaccine. Another item to talk about today is the podcast itself. The audio quality might be a little disruptive at times, and that is because I was taking my guest away from a Buffalo Bills game. And so please do excuse uh, either one of us for any disruptions in the audio. That's enough housekeeping, and on with the show. So my guest today, his name is Dr. Sohive Solomon. He is also known as the Egyptian surgeon on Instagram. I think many of you have uh, heard of him, at least. Sohaib was an upperclassman of mine back at the University of Washington School of Dentistry. He was a fourth year when I was a first year. He served as the national ASDA president, which is pretty unique for someone ending up in oral surgery. But the main topic of today is about working. Specifically, transitioning from residency to the workforce and how you can find a job and when to look for a job and the questions to ask when you're looking for a job. And Sohaib was the perfect guest for that because he is someone I know. (laughs) He's also a chief graduating this year. He is extremely well connected and he knows the field very well. And so I wanted to get his insight and perspective on looking for work. Also, I think it is very awesome that he started a family during residency. He is the father of a one-year-old daughter, which is fantastic. We do talk a little bit about the questions to ask during your work interview and what to look for and the percentage of compensation and so on, but not too much in the specific details. I do plan on bringing a different guest for that. And so we do mostly focus on Sohive's personal experience and his recommendations on what you should be looking out for when searching for work. And so, though this may be most pertinent to a lot of the chief residents listening, it is something for you to think about as you are in your lower levels of training, even in dental school. And it may help some of the senior surgeons who are listening, who are looking for associates or partners, to listen in on what a new grad is thinking about as they look for work. We didn't get into the details about when to apply for certain licenses or getting privileged at a hospital because that does vary state to state, and I will cover that in a different 
episode. Anyway, it was great talking to a chief resident who is planning for his next steps in his journey. And I hope you all find it of benefit, as I did. I bring you Dr. Sohaib Solomon. All views expressed on the show and the following episodes belong to the host or the guest and do not represent the opinions of any entity. Hey, Sohaib, welcome to the show. Yeah, I'm actually honored to be on here. It's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you honored? Well, this is the thing. I don't, I've actually, I just started recently being involved in podcasts. So like, I feel like, you know, somebody's like even interested in hearing what I have to say. It's like, oh, wow, well, I'm honored because I'm, I feel like I have nothing really that much to add, but <laughs> it's just it's exciting always. You know, I got into podcasts early, I think in college and it has influenced me a lot in my life. What are you listening to now for podcasts? I mean, honestly, I think it's just like fun. I feel like if there's, you know, I, the thing I like about it is it's an opportunity, you know, like to, what is what I'm looking for? Like, you know, there's so much involved in like our, our field, whether it's oral surgery, dentistry, it's like super serious and people want to know like the straightforward, you know, details like tell me how to do this and that. But people don't realize that part of like a lot of life is all this random stuff that happens and this chaos and this like stuff you don't ever learn about or hear about. So the one thing I like about podcasts is like an informal way, you know, to discuss things like you start hearing, out, oh, I had no idea that happened. And that's how you did it. So for me, podcasts like give that sort of informality to the formality of it all, if that makes any sense. <laughs> so I just like I enjoy these. What shows do you listen to right now? Um, you know, if I'm being absolutely honest on podcasts, um, this is going to sound crazy, but I and because I actually think he's absolutely nuts. But, you know, like Joe Rogan, I always say like this. I hate to say I hope I've never like he never gets this or anything I, I think but it's just like interesting like that that kind of informality to it all it is you know just sit ball talk to each other back and forth it's kind of funny so I actually for some reason I would really just enjoy listening to what they those guys have to say and what his guests have to say yeah you know I think he is popular because he openly talks about very maybe contentious thoughts and I think People are dying to hear that, regardless of your political views or whatnot. But we won't get into politics on the show today because <laughs> yeah. avoid it. The Stay podcast away. is too small to lose any listeners right now. <laughs> That's awesome. So hi, thank you. I mean, I know you have a uh, a game to watch tonight, and I'm sorry to take you away from that. But I've been looking forward to this show for quite some time, or this episode for quite some time, um, mostly because I knew you from dental school. And you were always a very charismatic person at my school. And you went on to become now a chief resident at the University of Buffalo. I, I think it's a very unique background that you have. Uh, and we'll get to that. And so the question I want to ask to start with is, you were as the president during dental school. And now you're a chief resident in oral surgery. Tell me more about that journey. Yeah, that's actually very interesting because it's, it's funny because I think... Uh... I believe I'm the only national as the president to get an oral surgery. I think there was a national as the vice president, um, Andrew Reed Fuller, who was Parkland, and he ended up doing oral surgery um, through that. And I, when I came into dental school, I remember like, I, you know, I was always gung-ho. I knew I wanted to be an oral surgeon. I kind of tailored my decision to leave medicine to go to dentistry because I knew oral surgery or oral maxillofacial surgery was always a possibility. So I, when I went to my first ever national ASDA meeting, I remember he was there, and I think he was there on behalf of Roe Amos when he was at the meeting as being like a, a past national leader. So I went up to him and I talked to him and I remember like jokingly I asked him like, hey man, so you think if I ever, you know, became national as the president, you think it would help me get into like oral surgery? And I remember he just like looked at me like straight dead in the face and was like, no. He's like, listen man, at the end of the day, 
it's all about GPA, class rank, research, all that stuff. At the very end, maybe they'll ask you about that stuff. So, uh, so I remember it was like very eye-opening to hear that like immediately. So then, uh, you know, at that point, I kind of didn't really think much about it, and that's when I started getting involved in ASDA. And ASDA, like, I, I don't know, I think for me it was just, because I always had a little bit of a political background. I was, like, the president of my undergrad college. I was involved where I led the statewide um, student government in New Mexico, so I was kind of, like, super into that stuff. So ASDA was always that draw to me to get involved. So that sparked one side of me. So I had this contentious kind of, you know, the leadership slash um, oral surgery battle continuously through the first two years. And then eventually I, I, I decided, you know what, I wanted to continue with the leadership side. So I, I feel bad. And you, as you know, like oral maxillofacial surgery is a very competitive field. You can't, you know, slack on GPA, can't slack on class rank. The CBSC is super important. So for me, it was like I was gone so often for these ASDA meetings and I was flying out all the time and I was being involved and I was district trustee. I held that gigantic conference in Seattle in my junior year, um, which took a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of energy. And so I never really, and thankfully I never slacked off enough on my grades to where I was not competitive or my CBSC wasn't that bad that I was, you know, shut the door on my face. But I actually, when it came down to it, I just wasn't giving it the amount of focus I should have. So in my mind, I was thinking, well, all these other opportunities are opening for me now through ASDA. You know, being when I was finally elected the national ASDA president, which still like blows my mind that that ever happened, that they, uh, you know, all these corporate companies were coming for me and they wanted me to, you know, kind of be their advertising piece or token piece. So with that came extra pay, extra money than the average, you know, graduate may not, may receive. So, you know, when I saw that, and I came from humble beginnings, like my parents, both immigrants from Egypt. So these were dollar signs I never even pictured in my life to be like seeing. So I kind of like lost, you know, sight of what I initially was passionate about, what I wanted to do. So I ended up like signing a contract with Aspen Dental. And then this is actually why I give them so much props and I appreciate it because when, you know, towards the end of my junior, my senior year, when I already signed that contract, was about to, you know, pursue that that uh, that job down in New Mexico and continue with them. I just felt like, you know, this isn't what I wanted to do. I always wanted to be an oral maxillofacial surgeon. I always wanted to be involved in that field. So literally at that time, I, I rang him up and said, "Hey guys, listen, like I'm really sorry, but like this isn't my passion. Dentistry isn't my passion. My passion is surgery, and I want to be involved in that." And they were super nice. They didn't hold it against me. They said, "Hey, listen, like consider us when you're an oral surgeon, but we don't want you to keep you from getting your dream. Like go for it." It was a weird journey, but I think it kind of started off being 100% oral surgery. In the middle, it became 100% as the switch to dentistry. And then ultimately, I just came back to what I originally was passionate about. And thank God it worked out. I'm a chief level resident now at University of Buffalo looking for jobs. And I'm excited that I'm at the end of the road almost. You know, and that is surprising to me because I remember towards the end of your fourth year, I saw you near the elevator and you told me the story about, you know, Aspen's uh, offer. But then you were telling me that you're going to go into oral surgery. And you ended up doing a non-categorical internship, I think, at JPS. But then you had a very interesting story of how you were able to then now graduate so soon as a chief. What happened then? So that, that's actually, and this is something that it's funny that, uh, you know, I, I, I would love to apply it, but this could happen to other people. And I think and it does happen across the country, which, by the way, I was shocked this kind of stuff does occur. But it, you don't hear about it really on Student Doctor Network. You don't hear about it. You know, in the past, um, I'm in a match, excuse me, you don't hear about it, like in general discussions. It tend to be like inter-program director stuff. And if the stars align, sometimes things work out in your favor. So when I dropped that contract with Aspen, I had nothing. I had like nothing lined up. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a GPR. All the non-categorical spots were full. I mean, we're talking about April, your senior year, man. Like, what is there to scramble into at that point? Like, it's over. So I remember like during that time, University of Iowa had a, a, a resident who dropped out to pursue orthodontics. 
at that time period. So during that spot, they had an opening for their GPR. So I thought to myself, and actually I spoke to Dr. Dotson at UW, and he he's great. He gave me like 100%, you know, input on like what he thinks the best thing to do. And you know, his, his number one opinion to me was like, you need to do a non-categorical internship. That's what they want to see. That's what all applications want. But they were all taken. So he said, well, you know, if you absolutely had to pick one, like yeah, a GPR may not be the worst because at least you're in a hospital setting. At least you can get involved with the oral surgery program there. So when that opportunity happened, I, you know, I submitted, I applied, I got, and thankfully I got accepted to the GPR there. And, uh, and then, so when I was there, you know, it still wasn't the ideal thing. I thought to myself, I'll get involved with those guys, get close to the University of Iowa's OMFS program, and then hopefully maybe into a non-cat the following year, if I'm maybe even luckier into an actual program after that. So I get to University of Iowa. I'm literally like, I remember I moved there like Friday and the program started Monday. And what's funny is my friend, Mike Sue, and I don't know if you remember, you remember Mike? So Mike was at JPS and he, I remember on Friday morning, he picks up the phone and calls me because one of their non-cats had dropped out and he literally called him and said, Hey man, like we have an open spot down in JPS, like drop everything, apply, like, you know, get down here. Cause he knew the full story. He knew my, my struggles and where I was at. And, uh, and luckily the University of Iowa GPR guy knew like that I wanted to do oral surgery. That was part of the entire plan. He knew my story. So Monday, you know, I sent all my stuff on Friday. Monday morning rolls around and we're doing the orientation and like rounding and all this stuff. And then I remember like, I was like, you know, apprehensive about it all. Like how much documents do I sign? Will I be here this long? Like what's going on? And then Dr. Stella called me at lunch during that day and told me like, Hey, listen, like we're, we'll take you at JPS if you're interested still in the position. So I remember like I walked in the program director of the GPR's office told him, Hey, listen, like this is what happened. I don't like mean any disrespect. It's like, there's an opportunity that I think would be really beneficial to me. You know, he knew again, the oral surgery track. So, I remember he told me straight up, he was a really nice guy and he's like, well, I, I'd be, you know, a jerk for stopping you from your dream. Like, do what you got to do. I totally understand. It sucks a lot to fill your spot now, but at least, you know, congratulations. So I literally like packed my bag. I left Iowa at like 5 p.m. I got into Fort Worth, Texas at 11 a.m. the next morning. Like I drove nonstop all night, got out like and I went straight and then I did my non-cat year there. So that's like the roundabout of getting there. So again, it was crazy. And then when I was there, and that's the one thing I tell anybody, like, I think the problem is, is that some people get discouraged when, you know, when things don't open up in the right way and, and when things don't always line up. And thankfully, that's one thing I'm excited. And not, not, excited is not the right word. One thing I'm, like, proud about and my parents have always, like, instilled in me that no matter how crazy or how door, the, you know, how, how close you are to the door being slammed in your face, like, you know, go 110%. You never know what doors are going to open. So, you know, I was there and I thought to myself, like, okay, well, you know, it is what it is. I'm here at a non-cat, like, I may have to do another non-cat year. I may have to scramble. You know, we'll see what happens. So when I was at JPS, you know, I, I worked my butt off and, you know, I, I stayed as passionate as I possibly could and, and, and really worked for it. So when match time came around, like Dr. Stella knew kind of my story when he was down there and he was good friends with, with the program directors up at University of Buffalo. And so it was Dr. Campbell uh, at the time. And he, the two of them were in contact and they knew that there was an open position there. And actually a, a person from the year before me had done the same thing that I'd done. At JPS. And that's one thing I will say, and I say this absolutely proudly. In my opinion, I think JPS is one of the top non-cats in the country, like hands down. No disrespect to all the other one, other programs out there. I think there's a lot of good ones out there, but JPS is rigorous and it's intense. And if people can finish that year out with good recommendations, they're going to be a solid resident. So I think from what I'd worked in the background that I had, um, Dr. Stella, like he literally told me when it was time for like the match time, he said, hey, listen, like if you're interested, because the other guys were, were applying and they, and they had good chances of matching that year. And so he told me, like, if you're interested and it's something you want to do, passionate about, because I told him, like, I want to do a six-year program. So my CBSC was good, but it wasn't like, you know how it is now. Like, the CBSC to get into a six-year minimum, you have to be a certain level. 
So he told me like, if you're interested and you want to let go of the six year spot and you want to like, you know, do something different, I can, you know, make some calls and see if we can make something happen for you. So again, that's all testament that no matter how much you think it's shut, just work your butt off. You never know who notices. So then he, he ended up like helping me. So when University of Buffalo had an opening in there, what would be the fourth year spot on a six year track? So the guy before me, the way they did is because JPS was such a good non-cat year, they accepted him straight directly into the four year track off of the, like off on a four year track starting as basically almost like a second year resident, which is equivalent to the off service year fourth year. So he did good there. So that, that made them ha like happy about the JPS residents. So then that's when Dr. Stahl made the call. And this was like about March. This was after match. So I basically didn't even apply to the match that year because I was waiting to see what would happen with this. So talk about all your eggs in a basket, right? So, and thankfully it worked out and Dr. Campbell accepted me and I ended up starting out as a PGY4 the technically. So I'm considered a PGY6 now, although I am only on a four-year track, so no MD. So yeah, it was, it's nuts. Like I'm telling you, man, like you never know. You just keep working, take any opportunity you can get. And sometimes it just works out. So how many years of an OMS residency did you skip? So the, technically speaking, it's not so much that I skipped anything. It's like, so my non-categorical year counted as my, as a categorical year. That's what I am understanding. Yeah. Correct. Exactly. So theoretically speaking, I skipped a year because that, that, that does, but they counted it as their intern year. So I continued two, three, and four at University of Buffalo, which lined up with the four, five, and six year on the track. Cause University of Buffalo doesn't have a four year track. So I use that to fill the resident spots and, and it's worked out really well in the past and and so you come in and it's, and it's kind of funny because I come in at this level, you know, where everyone has an MD at University of Buffalo and like you work with the other, and nobody knows about single degree surgeons there because the, all OMFS guys are dual degrees. So you have that chip on your shoulder to get in there and, you know, work twice as hard and like prove that, you know, you have every right to be there like anyone else. So luckily I'm, I'm all about that challenge. I'll go toe to toe with anybody. So, it's like, so it, I, like I said, I think a lot of stars aligned to help me out. And, uh, and I honestly, like it, uh, it worked out really well. Thank God. A very tumultuous path, so I. <laughs> so you essentially didn't lose any years, which is very nice. And so I guess we'll get on to the topic of today. Um, now, where are you headed after graduation? Do you know? Yeah, so I ended up marrying a woman from Seattle, and uh, and I'm originally from New Mexico myself. So the decision really boiled down between the state of Washington and the state of New Mexico. And uh, I think, especially, it was funny because the decision was a lot easier or maybe less complicated. And then once, you know, we had our first daughter, now it became more about family support, that structure, you know, being around that, again, I say support because I can't say that word enough. And I had a good back. I mean, honestly, at the end of the day, my, my experience in Seattle was pretty good. I was in dental school there and like, the, I love the environment. I love everything that's there. I love the sports teams, like the weather. I mean, sure, minus the winter, which is God awful. But the, the rest of the year isn't bad. And it's like, so there's a lot more to do there. So when it boiled down to New Mexico and Seattle, my wife was able to win that argument because, you know, she convinced me that there's a lot of better stuff up in that area for me. So it looks like I'm, you know, heading back to the state of Washington. So I interviewed, actually still at the same time, I still interviewed for positions down in New Mexico anyway, just to kind of see what'd be going on there. So I, I talked to a couple of doctors down in New Mexico, and I, I've spoken to a couple of doctors up in Seattle. Right now, there's one group that I'm currently, like, orchestrating a deal with right now. We're in the middle of contract reviews. So that's exciting. I'm hoping that some good stuff turns out with there because if that works out, then hopefully I'll be able to sign and, and fly out there and start my life here in the summer. I want to talk a bit about the different types of roles that one can take, you know, associateships, partnerships. Do you know what kind, kind of work structure you're going to be going into? Ultimately, there's three types of surgeons, right? There's a the type that wants to own everything on their own. 
you know, we're type A people. Some people don't like to be involved in groups to kind of run the show. There's a type that is perfectly fine of working in groups and in teams. So that's kind of the associate to, to, uh, to partnership track. And the, so you have owner, you have associate to partnership, and then you have the third type of surgeon that doesn't want any of the headache of any of that. They're perfectly fine either being an associate for the rest of their life or they're fine working for a corporate company where they just come in, do their work, go home, and, and live their life, which there's nothing wrong with any three of them. I think for me, I, I liked the idea of being kind of the decision maker. I didn't like you know being a full associate for the rest of my life. I also didn't like the option of just going straight into ownership. I know some surgeons who have done that. They'll start literally, they'll finish graduation. Actually, my co-resident right now, he's looking into starting his own practice right off the bat. And there's companies out there that I didn't even know existed, but they'll literally, they'll do the footwork for you. They'll find the location. They'll, they'll tell you what the best place to open is. They'll literally, you, they'll work with you to buy the building, find all the permits, and then they'll actually give you the staff and help you hire people. And then they take a cut of your money until you eventually they decide to buy them out or be they become just a part of your management team while you own the practice and operate the rest. That was I think was a little too much for me. I wanted at least a little bit of insight. So my ideal track was graduate, you know, find an associateship. Ideally most people don't want to work more than one or two years and then be able to start the partnership track from there. So for me that's kinda of like the dream is, you know, work a year or two, find a really good fit, have a good relationship with that owner doc and then eventually buy in and be a partner. Because that's ultimately like I think you can be the most successful when there's multiple people at the helm. Versus just one, you just can't. I, I think the amount of growth becomes a little bit more limited at that point. To understand you correctly, you're going into an associateship with plans to partner in the future. Is that correct? Is it possible to just partner immediately right away? Listen, man, that's the dream, right? Because with partnership, of course, your pay increases significantly, your decision-making status increases significantly, and your so that's I mean that's everyone's dream. They can just partner right off the bat. But the problem is, partnership is like a two-way street, right? So you come in, sure, you're the most talented surgeon. You think you're like, you know, you can do whatever you want. You think you're comfortable enough to be performing at a partnership level. But the issue is that there's a level of trust that comes with partnership. And that's the biggest issue that tends to make or break a lot of deals. Because these people will come out and they'll graduate and they'll be like, all right, well, I want to go and I feel like I'm confident enough to be a partner. But then you look at the partner, they expect a certain level of production. They expect a certain level of knowledge, certain level of speed that maybe most new grads don't have yet. So for them, they have the fear where I bring you on, I partner you, and then you weigh me down. Because then you're required to do a certain level of things for your partner, and do you want this person to make decisions when he has no idea what he's doing? So that's, it's a two-way street where that level of trust really is what happens, and it's tough to find anybody who will trust you enough to partner with you right off the bat. Now, some people get lucky, and there's a, a retiring doc who doesn't have the time to go through that entire associateship, and they're looking to sell. So I've seen, I've heard people partnership, partnering within six months with a random doc they just met because they're able to kind of get that track and the doc is looking to sell out and kind of move on with his life and retire and enjoy his retirement. Or, you know, people have a dad who's an oral surgeon or a cousin or a brother and they can just immediately go into partnership post-grad. But it's very tough. Coming from your own perspective, instead of the other partners, I guess in your perspective, do you think there is a disadvantage of partnering immediately? I think one of the disadvantages of partnering immediately is like, it's almost like getting married, right? It's like, if you didn't know somebody and you, if I told you like, and if you're in a serious relationship now, like, but pretend like you had never even known your girlfriend and you were expected to just post to her that same day. Sure. It's all great. You have the honeymoon phase, but eventually you start finding out that, you know, she finds out that you like leaving your socks on the ground everywhere. You don't, you know, you don't ever do the dishes. Next thing you know, it becomes a headache and it starts building and issues. Same thing with a partnership, right? You come in, you think it's all going to be fun. And then at the end of the day, you're not producing enough or, you're just moving slow. You're treating patients poorly. And then once you partner, you can't, it's very tough to break out of it. You have a lot of money invested. Partnership does not come free. So for me, like if I graduate, yes, I'd love to partner in so I can start making more money. 
but what if I join this practice where I find out the owner doc, you know, is doing stuff that's maybe not ethical or is just being really aggressive. I don't like his treatment plans. Next thing I know, my name's on all this stuff. I'm partnered on, bought into all this stuff. It becomes very messy, these breakups. Talk about a divorce, man. Like a divorce, sometimes I feel like a divorce is easier than breaking out of a partnership because then who owns what, what's going on, what have you bought into, how much money do we owe you? So it, it can be very, very messy going in. So for me, it's like I, I need to, I, I actually, I'm more of a factor. I at least like to get to know somebody at minimum for a year so I can find out who they are as an owner. Are we going to vibe together? Like, am I going to trust my equity with you? Because if I buy in and you start throwing it all away or squandering and making stupid decisions, then I'm also getting hurt in the process. You said something earlier about how new grads don't have the production. They might not hit the production because of the speed that they don't really have. Uh, I mean, I, don't, I think residency does treat, train you to be a great surgeon in many different ways, but operating at the speed of a private practice uh, surgeon is definitely a different ballgame. And you said something, though, that some practice owners or some partners would like you to have some knowledge of you know, blank. What knowledge are you talking about? There, when I, and that's why I said production less than speed, because production is multifactorial. People think speed is speed. For me, like I think by, my, by your chief year too, Marcus, like you should be, you know, most of us are able to take out a set of four fully bonies under 30 minutes under IV sedation. Implants, you're done in 30 minutes if you have a nice smooth case. So I don't think people are lacking a lot of issue with speed post their chief year. Production is a combination of a lot of things. One, there's a combination of workflow where it's like understanding how you want to set up your schedule, understanding how to move from patient to patient, understanding if things go wrong, you get backed up, how to handle that dynamic. Because most people in residency, and I could be wrong, some most programs, you know, you may see maybe four or five procedures a day as a, as a, as a resident going full speed. And that's not including consults, but I'm talking specifically about procedures. You go into practice, I've heard surgeons that are knocking out 12, 13 procedures a day easily, minus not even including their consults. So there's, a, there's that being able to handle that workload altogether. Two, production is not always just purely procedures, right? You have to build your schedule. Most of us that are graduating, you know, not every dentist wants to refer to a brand new grad. You know, they trust you and they like you. You're an oral max facial surgeon. But I've worked, pretend like it's an example, like your father is an oral surgeon, right? So your father, I love working with the father. I'm sending him all my referrals. He's a great, great doctor. And then I find out that his son is starting to join him. But I don't know enough about you, Marcus. I don't know enough. Do I want to start sending my patients? It's tough. So you not, you may not have that full schedule for months afterwards. Another thing, too, is people don't realize when you're starting, when you graduate from residency, most states before you get your general anesthesia permit requires you to have an oral surgery certificate in your hand. Most programs don't give you a certificate until the very last day. So that's you have to apply for your general anesthesia permit, which can take up to two months in some states. So that's two months you can't even do sedations in your first year. So that's a big hindrance to production. So there's a lot of stuff that goes into that first year that new grads may not have the speed and the ability to understand. So for me, it's like it was nice to be able to talk to a lot of the new grads to kind of teach me what to watch out for, what pitfalls to avoid, how to be able to hit the ground running so you don't make the same mistakes that they did. But, you know, and I'll same thing whenever I, hopefully I'm out there my first year out, I have no problem telling people where I messed up, what I could have done differently, what you can learn from my mistakes so that you don't run into those same issues. But that's why I focus on the word production because it's just there's so much that goes into it. Do you feel like right now you have enough knowledge in running a business to be a partner in terms of, you know, practice management or, you know, interacting with staff or interacting with referrals? I think to be honest, probably not. If I'm being honest, like I, I'm, I'm the most, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty confident guy in general. I have no problem, you know, saying I'll go, like I said, I'll go toe to toe with anybody and anything. And if you put me in, in the water and tell me, like, you know, sink or swim, I'll swim, I'll figure it out, I'll do it. So I need to start a practice. But I think the one thing that you don't get in residency is, again, A, you don't have to court any of your referrals. 
nobody's, you don't have to go out. Your schedule, you know, gets assigned to a front desk schedule as they bring you your patients. Patients call to see you. So that's one thing that you don't get a lot of experience with is kind of getting out and getting referrals to be sent to you. Running a business is a totally different ballgame unless you ran a business before or worked for a dentist or like your father was or mother was somebody or, you know, your family member and you actually saw the inner workings of it. I feel like at least that you'd be, you know, we don't get any really practice management stuff here. And I think most residency programs, unfortunately, don't put enough emphasis on teaching you how to be a good all around private practitioner. Um, so that's one thing that you miss out on. And then two, I think just there's so much that goes into the basics, just like buying the products, what instruments you need, like hiring and firing. I mean, that's an entire the headache on its own. Like you have two assistants that are fighting with each other and it's starting to hurt the practice. It's like there's this entire dynamic that you don't deal with as a resident that if you, you know, your partner or an owner, all of a sudden you find yourself, you're making the final decision on these things. So it's, I think, at least again, this just goes back to me. Like I'd like to have at least a year of watching this knowing what it is so that if I start diving into it, it's like a lot easier for me to be involved in. Again, that's just me personally. You may meet another grad or somebody to talk to you that says, no, I feel 100% confident. But those are just some of the things that I've been told and what I've seen myself from other new grads. I think your background in leadership probably has helped you think like a leader no matter where you go. I think, you know, going into a practice, sure, you can go in as an employee. Uh, I mean, I've definitely worked at ice cream shops where I work strictly as an employee I want to get in and get out, maximize my own leisure, right? It's, I'm working for my own advantage. I want to get in and out as soon as possible. But, you know, when you bring leadership to it, I think you are able to think in perspectives that an employee doesn't. You are thinking about, well, how can I maximize the team's efforts? How can I maximize, you know, uh, morale? I think that you are able to see that because of your background. I do want to talk a bit about residency because I think a lot of my listeners are in residency or are finishing residency. I'm curious on how you have changed prior to residency, during residency and after in terms of the scope of practice you wanted. So whether you want to do a full comprehensive OMS or you want to do a very dental alveolar surgery focus. And I also want to know if your plans on whether private practice was the dream from the get-go or if you ever considered you know, academics, if you could talk about that. That's actually, again, these are, these are funny because they like definitely strike uh, to the core of me because, and I'm a, I'm a very upfront guy, straightforward. I'll, I'll be absolutely honest with you guys, kind of see so you can understand what was going through my, my mind at the process. So when I, for me, like when I first got into residency at JPS, it's a very intensive head and neck program in the sense that there's no other head and neck team at the hospital. OMFS is the only head and neck team. There's no plastics, there's no EMT. So for us, like we do all the flap cases, we do all like anything head and neck that comes to the door in that ED, we take care of. I remember I was taking care of like otitis medias, internas, mastoiditis cases. Like it was like everything like that was ENT related in the ED. We would see tonsil bleeds, post tonsillectomies, like nasal bleeds, post like rhinoplasties. I remember having to deal with like, how do I deal with this? This nose has been fixed, but it won't stop bleeding. So it's for me, it was like that kind of opened my eyes towards being more involved in that. And there was a really good head and neck program there, the Morris program at JPS, a lot of flaps, a lot of thyroid. So I really got drawn into that. And I, I thought to myself, I wanted for sure to do some kind of head and neck, like either ablative or reconstructive when I finished, because that's what was so interesting to me. Now, fast forward to, and I didn't get a lot of experience in some of the other stuff, such as trauma and orthodontics, because as an intern at JPS, you're not really as much in the OR with them as much as you're in the clinics. But with the head and neck guys, you would rotate with them a month every couple of months and you would spend all the time with them. So that kind of drew my attention to that one initially. Then, you know, I started residency at University of Buffalo. And University of Buffalo at that point, Dr. Markowitz wasn't there yet. 
or he was, he don't, he'd only come like once a month, but he would do cranial facial only there. So, and usually only the seniors and the chiefs would attend there. So my second year there, I was getting more involved in some of the orthopedic cases, some of the trauma that was there. And that's what kind of started drawing my eye was the trauma and orthopedics. And then at the same time, that's also when I got married to my wife was like my second and then my third year. So at that time, you know, it's very easy when you're single and very easy when you're living alone to be okay doing flap cases until 11 o'clock at night and, you know, rounding all these patients for a week afterwards and being called in on stuff because it doesn't bother you as much. But when you start having, you know, a living, breathing human being who expects you to be there that like have time in their life for, for you to have time in your life for them, then, it, you know, your priorities start shifting in life a little bit. So I started realizing maybe head and neck isn't the way I want to go because it may not be the lifestyle. And, and you know, God bless these guys because it's not an easy lifestyle by any means. So for me, I want to do more of like trauma, craniofacial um, orthopedic. Then start my fifth year is when Dr. Mark Lux came in and he started doing um, more of the craniofacial cases, which I thought were absolutely cool. Like, the you know, the, the full skull vault reconstruction, cleft lip, cleft palate, like these kind of stuff were, were, were really interesting to me. So I thought, started thinking, well, maybe I'll do a fellowship in craniofacial and I'll get involved with that. The problem was with that is at this point, I was a single degree surgeon. So the problem with single degree is that, again, at the end of the day, our scopes are the same. But to get certain hospital privileges and to be involved in certain fellowships, they really do want to see an MD attached to your training. So that started limiting a couple of doors for me and where I wanted to go. And then ultimately, at the end of the day, I thought to myself, well, I at least want to do cleft lip and cleft palate because I you know my family, being from Egypt, they've always wanted their son to go back and like do some of this stuff for, for the low, you know, disadvantaged population there. But then I started finding out. I remember I called one of the craniofacial program directors and he told me like, well, what, what do you like about craniofacial? I told him, well, to be honest, it's the cleft lip, cleft palate stuff. I want to be able to go overseas and do this. He was the program director down in El Paso. And he told me straight up, he was like, well, I mean, listen, if that's all you want to do, like why do a one-year fellowship? Like a lot of these guys, they already have programs. You can go overseas, train under the plastics, OMFS, ENT guys. They'll show you the ropes because you're needed everywhere around the world. So it's not going to be as limited than trying to practice in America. So that was really eye-opening to me that I was like, well, maybe I don't have to do the one-year fellowship to do all this stuff. So that, it was funny that all that stuff together. And then at that same time that my daughter was born, and then I was like, and I, you know, started hanging out with her and I realized that already as a resident, I wasn't, you know, around her as much as I wanted to be. So I was like, well, do I really want to do this for another year or two after residency? So these are all these like life changes to me that started shifting where my goals were and where I wanted to be. And so then I started boiling down to that. I like trauma. I like ornithopathic and I like dental alveolar. So to me, you can do all that in private practice. You don't have to do additional fellowships. So all that kind of started funneling me to where I wanted to go. And that's hopefully when I graduate, that's kind of what I want to focus on. Is like orthopedics, dental alveolar, and then maybe a little bit of trauma here and there. Now, to answer your question about the academics, I did always want a dream, like half and half, 50-50 academics. I want to be involved. And there actually was a, a, a job in New Mexico that was like perfect. It was like 50-50, you were involved with the um, University of New Mexico. You were on the cleft craniofacial team. Um, you were um, doing orthopedics there. And then on the half a week, you were also in private practice doing, you know, wisdom teeth under sedation implants. So like it was the perfect combination. You did trauma there. You worked with the residents that were ENT and plastics because there's no OMFS program there. So it was like everything I wanted. But again, I think one thing, and I, and I hate to say this, and, I, and I'll be honest, I think when you're involved enough, and maybe you've seen this a little bit, you don't have to answer this question. It's controversial. But I think academics, unfortunately, also comes with a little bit of issues on its own. And I think that there may be too many cooks in the kitchen in some hospitals a little bit. And I hate to say this, but maybe a little bit of like egos that go, gets involved with it. Everyone starts butting heads. And it's just unfortunate between the different services, even within services themselves. So it gets tough. And to me, it's like I didn't want to be really involved in much of that headache as initially I anticipated. 
So I, I, and private practice kind of helps you avoid that if you have a good partnership, stuff like that. So again, I might get chewed out for saying that kind of stuff on your podcast. And I apologize to the viewers who got offended by that, that comment. But I think that kind of turned me off a little bit towards academics and kind of made me realize that, you know, private practice is where I want to go. No, I definitely agree. I think academics, there are some, you know, bigger egos in academics and you can see it, not just in OMS, but again, cross specialties, uh, cross departments. And it does te- definitely limit the uh, freedom that you can exercise, and which is what we're all after, right? We're trying to be OMFS, we're trying to be dentists, we're trying to be healthcare providers to have freedom to do treatment onto our patients in the way that we think is best or what we think is best for the patient. Originally, I uh, wanted to go into academics as well, but I don't know if that's kind of what at the end of the tunnel for me anymore, you know, the more and more I see it. Yeah, wait until you're in your uh, senior and chief years and when you're getting more administratively involved and you start having to deal with directly more of that stuff, that's when you start really start opening your eyes. You can even talk to your chiefs yourself. I'm sure they'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, they seem the most stressed in my program. Do you feel like, though, that the admin rules, because you mentioned earlier that you don't get practice, you don't get the training in practice management, how to handle uh, the business side of oral surgery or practice. But the admin stuff, you know, as a younger, as a lower level, I look at that as busy work, as junk work, things that the intern does. But then if I, looking forward to where you're at, do you think that has helped you, you know, think more in the business aspect for your next journey? Oh, yeah, definitely. A hundred percent. I think that, um, so to, I guess just speaking back to what you say about admin work, I think the one thing about chiefdom that kind of helps you the most is that you it really, you have to learn to juggle a lot of pieces and really satisfy all parties. That's the hardest part is because you get, look, at the University of Buffalo, one thing I like about it is a very chief-run program in the sense that the chiefs have a lot of, you know, autonomy to decide how they want to set up the schedules, how they want to get people to go. Of course, attendings will go in and, you know, they'll change things around if they need something to be changed. But for the most part, my co-resident and I really kind of dictate who ends up where and what's, who's involved in what cases, call schedules, all that stuff. So I think, you know, from some standpoint, it's a little stressful because, again, you have to appease everyone, make sure that, you know, the attendings are happy, the residents are happy, things are going the way they need to go. So from that standpoint, I think it definitely does help in private practice, ultimately, because, again, if you are trying to be involved more at that administrative slash, like, um, owner level, just being able to, you know, juggle the multiple pies, not just surgical, but also, like, you know, understanding how to set up schedules, understanding how to set up basically in general workflow um, I think just handling also like the individual like resident, you know, and it happens within teams. There's always like big screen things aren't working out the way they need to be. Um, you know, residents, the way that they handle all this stuff with, between attending is just kind of being mediator, getting in, moving things along without having to, you know, ideally hurt either party or, you know, take sides, just be able to, you know, be a, an objective, good leader. I think that also some things will definitely help you out in private practice. So. For me, I think, and I always like saying this on, on like all this stuff, people, you know, always think like chiefdom, like life gets so much easier once you're a chief. And, and I'll be honest, it actually, overall, there's no comparison between a chief life and an intern life. I think the intern year just sucks no matter where you are in the country. <laughs> it's just awful. I think, I think the stress type changes like from that. Like when I was an intern, at least like when you told, you know, when somebody told me to do something, I, I just had to get it done. I think the one thing is a chief. If you think things are done right, and then all of a sudden you, get, you can get like a message in the middle of the night saying like, hey, I need this, you know, I need a resident here, or I need something there, or why was this done this way, or why did this resident mess this up? The next thing you know, you're just like, you're immediately grouped into any any issue that happens with an intern. It's like the chief gets brought in, because ultimately it's your service, why did this intern do this? So it's interesting, like how that shifts, but I got to say to all you interns out there listening, or if anyone's out there, like, 
God bless you. It's <laughs> just as bad over here. It's great, though. I think that you have that experience of managing or leading people because it probably reminds you of when you were an intern. You're probably like, I made those same mistakes. And so I guess I can't berate this guy. I can't yell at this resident because I've been there, done that kind of thing. It's funny you mentioned that, Marcus, because actually that's literally what I want to say, especially to the chiefs. I think chiefs, and I've met a lot of chiefs in my life that I've not liked because, you know, they tend to forget the one that they are once in your shoes, once in your, not you specifically, but once in the shoes of the intern here. And I remember like some interns, you know, they'll mess up really bad if you tending, you know, will like call them out on something. And, you know, you feel like you're the most useless person on earth. Well, you know, we've all been there, right? You just get chewed out. You're like, man, I suck as a human being. I can't get do anything right. <laughs> I remember it was just like so nice to be able to tell the guy, listen, man, like I was there. You think it? You think this mistake was bad? I did this, and you can even say something you did even worse than that. I'm like, oh no way! Like, so it's like we've all been there. I think people tend to forget that and they get to this like holier than thou attitude when they get to the senior level. And it's like, shut up, man! Like you were just there in that level. You messed up just as bad. Like. Get over yourself. I remember one time when I was uh, first in the oral surgery uh, rotation as a dental student, I thought I was this badass. I was like, oh, yeah, I've been on externships. I've done this and that. And I remember my first tooth extraction, I uh, I broke the tuberosity of one of my patients. And I was like, oh, shit, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not cut out for oral surgery. But, you know, and then I, I progressed and progressed. And I saw my, you know, lower level dental students do these things. And I always had to remind myself, OK, I've been there. I have to let them, you know, do their own thing. I have to let them make their mistakes. That's how you learn. And uh, that's something that you only gain through experience. And I think that's wisdom. I, I want to ask, you know, one question extra about residency before moving on to more of your work interviews and your um, kind of how you negotiate with your practices. Residency is broken up into four to six years. And each year, you're focusing on something else. Intern year, you're focusing on working in the hospital, getting the hospital lingo. And in chief year, you're working on getting your final CODA requirement surgeries, but also looking for jobs, learning to be a leader, learning to lead a service. What recommendations do you have for residents of each year to focus on? So, I mean, I think honestly, as an intern, I think your intern year, I think for everybody, it's like, I, I think I, I told, and I told Sandy to my interns here, like focus less on your screw ups because you're going to screw up. Like just come in realizing you're going to screw up. You're going to feel dumb. You're going to feel like you have absolutely no idea about anything. And that's true because one thing about OMFS is different than most other surgical residencies is that we have no medical background. For the most part, you don't even know what the heck anything about medicine when you start your intern year. And you're expected to pretty much know how to manage inpatients. So you've never even seen a hospital EMR. You've never even done any of that stuff. So that can be like pretty intense. For that first transition so i tell them like forget all that stuff just know you're going to mess up that's part of life the one thing is just being a sponge absorb absolutely everything you possibly can your intern year that's the thing absorb how to you know what you the chiefs tell you what they what your the nurses tell you what your attendings tell you just absorb and write everything down i love when interns any intern that i have that as soon as i say something or they or another senior says something they just start writing it down in that notebook because it shows me that they're engaged and they're truly interested in what i have to say and what they need to learn to be better as an intern so for me, it's like if you can just absorb as much as you can because the application doesn't start yet. As an intern, you're not expected to do a surgery from start to finish. Really, you're just expected to hold sticks and not move. That's really your biggest job as an intern. You're sure you may get involved in like some of the dental cases, but you're never going to do a bigger case. That's just the way the world works. But if you're actually in there actively engaged and watching and understanding, then when it's time to apply, you're going to be just as successful. So for me, that's the number one goal behind intern here. Now, your second year, again, if you're in different programs, we'll ignore the med school. We'll pretend you're, you've done raw off-service. 
that second year of practice or your or technically your second and the third year will just combine the two together. That's about application. So that's the part where you have to start realizing that, listen, like for me, it's not so much leadership. You're not really leading a team yet. You're not really involved. It's like, how do I make myself a better surgeon? What do I need to learn? Where are my shortcomings? Focusing on where you feel weak in the operating room, where you feel weak on service, you know, pay attention to those lectures. I remember my, my second and third year when I was on like medicine or when I was on the other off service rotations, again, I would, anything that somebody said that I didn't understand or remember or didn't understand or didn't get what they were saying, I would just jot down in my notebook and I would forget about it. And I would get home at night, I would open that notebook and I would literally Wikipedia rabbit hole or like every like topic that was discussed so I could like feel comfortable about it the next day. Same with lectures. I remember sometimes you feel too stupid to ask a question, like in case conference in the morning, that's fine. If you don't want to ask it, don't ask it, but write it down and go look it up yourself. Because that's really what the second and third year, or even mostly like your second year on service is really what it's all about, is just making yourself a better surgeon. Then your third or your senior year before your chief year, um, your senior year is really more about, you know, learning how to be the leader in the operating room in both the surgeries and on service. So really like your first year, I like to break it down my senior year into being like your first six months are all about building yourself up to where you should be able to start running surgeries on your own. That's my, been my goal. And my co-chief's goal is that by my seniors, by the start of now, should be comfortable being in the ORs by themselves with the attending. That's what we've been working on, and thankfully they've been getting there. They're a phenomenal team that we have here. And then at that point, now the transition becomes how to be, a, how do I become a leader? How do I get involved in running the service? So that when I start my chief year, I don't have to learn anything. My chief year is about applying completely everything I've learned those last three years, three or four years. And again, I speak specifically to on-service, we'll ignore the med school part. So for them, it's like your first year is absorbed, second year is how to make yourself better, third year is how to transition to a leader, and your last year, your chief year, is all about applying everything you've done. And that's knowledge. And that's also, I think the one thing about chief year that I tell any chief out there, again, two points, like I said earlier, don't forget that you were once an intern and just as dumb as the rest of us. That's the one thing I think a lot of chiefs forget and think that they're holier than thou. And two is that when you're a chief, really, it's all about not only just like, you know, making yourself better and making your team better. That's what the focus is, is like, how do I make my intern stronger? How do I make my second years or junior stronger? How do I make my seniors stronger? Because it's all about leaving the program better than you, than you started with it. That's what every chief should focus on. If you can focus on those two things, you're not going to be that malignant chief that everyone talks about and then, you know, the nightmares, or you're not going to be that pushover chief that did nothing in the entire year and just skated by. So that's, that's kind of what like my focus has been is just like, how do I make the team better? And how do I how do I make myself better? And also ultimately is like just putting myself that I was once in their shoes, not to be as hard or malignant as some of these chiefs are, not just to like pimp people just to pimp them, but ultimately how to construct them and make them better. What a very unique perspective to think in the terms of I want to leave the program better than the way it was when I came in. I think that's so hype. That is really truly ownership mentality. I think it is so helpful to become in the mind of an owner rather than an employee. And I think I see that right now, you know, as you go through residency, just from hearing your stories and as you, I guess, look for work, just to shift gears a bit, what questions have you asked during your work interviews that were extremely helpful? Not the typical, you know, what does this day look like? Oh, how many, how much production do you make? But what work interview questions do you think everyone should ask? I think I think the number one thing you have to be comfortable with is the environment. I think some of the random questions that I that are very important to ask is for sure understanding staff turnover. Like one is like, well, are your staff happy being there? Like, what's your hiring and firing rate? Like, how often? What's the average term of employment for these staff? Because again, it's very easy when you're one-on-one -on -one talking to a doctor. A lot of times it sounds like it's golden. 
you know, they sell you the moon. It's like beautiful. You guys have a phenomenal relationship. And then I've heard this more than once, and it's so sad. They get, these residents get promised the moon, they're painted this rainbows, and then they show up there, and the next thing you know, it's like half, they're getting paid half what they were promised. Everybody is miserable there. There's never even any plans of partnering, and they're done on the way out. So that's it's just unfortunate. So just understanding the staff and their mentality around the staff happy there, that's kind of the number one thing. that, And it sometimes be tough and a little iffy to ask. And I think some people are often reluctant to kind of ask some of the harder questions because it can be – you know, everyone wants to get a job. They want to have their dream. They want to believe it's better than it is. And that's the thing. It's like moving yourself from that believing it's better than it is and, 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 and actually realizing that, you know, at the end of the day, it's business. That's all that matters. And all that's written in the contract is all that matters. And no matter what people tell you, that's just all, you know, you just, that's not worth anything. So that's the thing is understanding staff turnover. The next thing is how many associates have been to this place? Have you hired associates before? How long have they been there? How long has it been to partner? What was your time to partner? What was the average? Like that's, Understanding the person, the owner's time themselves on their own tracks and also like how many associates have been through your position. And not only that, if you figure out who the associate is, if you can talk to that associate, find out why they left, find out what about that practice wasn't good. Um, and I think the biggest thing is doing your research before you even talk to the owner. Like a lot of these jobs, they actually have, like you can go on, um, I think, what's the word? There's a website, I can't remember, it's like Glass Window or something. There's like these different websites you can actually, that people, not only patients will rate the place, but also workers. Previous workers go on and leave reviews about these program, about these practices they worked at. So I remember like reading reviews about other ones where, you know, the previous employees will say this stuff that I never even expected. So that's, that's very important if you to like do your research before when you go in. Um, ignoring the usual fee structure and pay. I think that's something that people, you know, will become part of any other question. But on top of that, ask around what the average pay is in the area. So don't just focus what, on what the person calls you. Like, if you have any friends in the area, other associates, they don't have to be at a practice that's not even hiring. Who cares if they're hiring? <laughs> Excuse me. Just call that associate up, and if they're open talking to you about it, and some of them aren't because it's like non-disclosure or whatever, but if you can figure out anything that you can, find out what the average reimbursement in the area is. What do most base pays look like? How long do these people take to partner? Because, again, there's certain level, and I'm not saying all owners are like this because some of them, a lot of them tend to be good people, but some people will prey on these associates. And they'll expect that you know nothing and they'll come in and they'll convince you that what you're making is competitive. And then, but in reality, you're being underpaid significantly compared to other colleagues that are like, you know, a couple miles down the road. So there's, there's a certain level of research you have to do before you step in the door and then not being scared to ask those kind of random questions that give you an idea of the environment. Because the environment ultimately is everything. I remember talking to a couple of associates that have told me in the past when I was talking about, you know, what base pay should look like. And some of them told me, ignore what the doctor will pay you up front. Because that's not as important. What's important is how long is it going to take to keep you there, and how long is the partnership track going to look like, and how long how long do you see yourself being in that area? That's kind of the number one goal behind any partnership. It doesn't matter if they pay you chump change up front, as long as that contract says they're going to partner with you 100%, or they'll evaluate at some point. Because that's what everyone's ultimate goal is. So again, the next question to ask is, what does it look like for me to be a part of the bigger picture here? Do you see me as being a, a partner? Now, do you see me as being a partner? I want to see it in writing. Don't just tell me you see me as being a partner because, again, I've heard horror stories where people will come in. There's, there's practices I'd hate to like name them in, in person that uh, have this track record of burning and churning associates because ultimately at the end of the day, an owner can make way more money off an associate than they can off a co-partner because you come in and you get paid, you know, if you're lucky, 30% of production um, and they're making off of you the other 60% minus overhead. But they're making all that money. So they come, they bring these people, they promise them the world, promise them associate tips, the partnership track, 
at year two, when it's time to discuss a partnership, they're like, well, you know, we just don't think they're a good fit. See ya. Next associate comes in. These guys are just burning and churning them. That's the number one, one thing to me to focus on is the environment and what does it look like or what is it going to take for me to be a partner with you? You know, you hit a really interesting question that I've always thought about before because of my girlfriend who's been interviewing for work or when she did interview for work. The question of have you had associates before and how many have you had? Why do you think that is important? Do you think that it is a reflection of the practice's health or do you think it's a reflection of the senior surgeon or the owner's uh, personality or just who they are? I think that I'd probably be more interested in that the latter being the issue or it's more about the owner. Um, one or two associates is fine. Not everyone's a good fit, right? You come in, people. some people just aren't experienced enough. Some people are just not great patients. So let's be honest, especially surgeons. Not all surgeons are good at talking to patients. So that's kind of why they got into surgery. So like, I'm not shocked if you know one or two associates pass through a position and they're let go. My issue is when it starts breaking the two, it's like three or four associates. Well, then, wait a second. What are the chances of all four of them being poor associates? What's going on? Like, what's, what's happening in the background? Are they unhappy being there? Are they just like moving? Is this like a stepping stone to some people? Like, but this, that should be some red flags. Once you start getting past like two associates, it's like, wait a second. Like, why are these people leaving? And that becomes concerning. So, Sohaib, you're, you're in Buffalo, New York, and you're coming all the way to Seattle, across the whole country, to settle in Seattle with your wife and your uh, one-year-old daughter. I've heard of contracts, or I've heard of, uh, you know, work interviews where you stay for about two weeks to even 90 days on a temporary contract where you're working for them, and there is a non-binding agreement of, hey, I can leave whenever I want if I don't fit in. And the practice also has the right to just let me go within those 90 days. And they might have a, a point at the 90 day where they reevaluate and renegotiate your contract. Do you think, well, one, do you have one? And two, do you think it is good to have one for uh, new grads? That's, that's actually interesting. To be frankly honest with you, I, I actually, I mean, I'm sure those exist. I've actually, I've never interacted with one directly myself. I think there's two ways to look at it. And for me personally, I, I would like to know an owner enough before. Like, so the guy that I'm currently talking to, I've actually visited his practice multiple times now. I've been out and chatted with him. But, you know, we've discussed multiple times. We've met, we chat all the time, you know, off. So, like, I think that's kind of been nice to be able to, you know, see him at work, see him at practice. I'll go out there, hang out with him for a week. Um, multiple times. So that, to me, like, I would like to be able to, you know, get hit the ground running right off the bat, because I think from a negotiating standpoint, you have more traction if you're trying to negotiate a larger contract than if you're trying to negotiate this kind of like, let's hang out for 90 days, see how things work out and decide to break up after that. That that can be tougher to negotiate an overall deal at that point. But on the flip side, it's not a bad idea. I mean, if, especially with some place that you're not quite certain about, and you're just not sure if it's something you want to do, but you're, you know, your back's against the wall a little bit. I could see the advantageous um, nature behind that. So again, I don't have any experience with it personally, but I, I would rather see one where I can start off on a longer term than a, than a shorter one. But if I had to, I could, I could understand why I would have to take one. You know, you are not uh, the only one who is crossing states to look for jobs. When do you think residents in their chief year should, or even during residency, look for or start networking and looking for jobs? I think your senior year is a great time. I don't think it's, you should wait until your chief year because it's not only that, a lot of places aren't looking for an associate yet, but you never know. They usually start looking for an associate by the time you're a chief. Like I've, I talked to multiple surgeons in the Seattle area last year who were like, oh, we're not really looking for a, you know, another associate right now, but we might be in the future. 
I still met with them. I still said, hey, like, listen, I want to get to know you. Like, you know, put put me on your radar. And then next thing I know, like, I emailed them this year, and they're like, oh yeah, we're actually looking for an associate now. So like, and that really puts me at the top of the pile because I've been in contact with them from a year earlier. So I, I really do think that surgeons should start looking in their senior year. I don't think you should wait to their chief year. Even if it's just simple as like reaching out, talking, establishing those connections, networking, like you mentioned, because that sets things up for your chief year that things can go smoother. Because, you know, I've heard people, it can take six months to negotiate contracts sometimes. Some people can take a really long time. And the last thing you want to be doing is end up in a position where your back's against the wall and accepting something you're not comfortable with. For me, it's like, I'm okay because if something falls through now, that's fine. I still have five more months to find something else. It's not the end of the world if I don't, if I don't succeed in my current contract. So that's, that's why I think like the earlier you can start, the more ability you have to be flexible in the process. That's my advice. Some people may feel otherwise. You know, as we kind of close up, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about um, your experience as a resident. What do you recommend residents focus on uh, outside of residency that can help them prepare for the real world? So, for example, you know, I have always had a huge interest in taxes, you know, investing opportunities in real estate. You know, what do you recommend residents learn during residency if they have the time to? Actually, you hit the nail on the head. I think the biggest thing, the biggest issue with residents, and I'm actually 100% guilty of this, I don't know Jack Diddley about finances. Like, I'll be honest, like, sure, I can, I have a checking account and I know that, you know, I need to make a certain amount of money and pay a certain amount of money and, and not go into debt. That's basically as minimal as I know. I still don't understand really how 401ks work. I still don't really understand what Roth IRAs are, like where to put money, like HRSA accounts, like all these random things that, you know, idea, let alone investments, like, I still like my wife and I are like now that we're moving to Seattle, like even considering looking at buying a new house, I don't even understand half the stuff that goes into buying a house. So I think if you have any free time, one mistake that I wish I'd spent more time on was like maybe allocating, reading more about this kind of stuff. My co-resident is really good at it. He like the guy reads, he knows like everything about all this financial stuff. But I think just preparing yourself because it's funny, I think in residence in general and just in surgery in general, you go from making no money to all of a sudden a lot of money. So like, and that, I think that transition is, can be the toughest because you oftentimes people can squander it. They can not make the right moves. So developing certain habits and having a certain knowledge through residency, then you can just carry that through when you're and be more successful in life. Yeah. So if you can do that, Marcus, I mean, by all means, like you'll be even much more successful than I'll ever be. This has been a great time learning about your story, kind of where you're headed. I'm very excited for you. I'm much more excited because I have a personal history with you in dental school. You've been my upperclassman. So it's really nice to see you succeed and conquer in life, which is awesome. And you have a new family, which is, I mean, that is another another whole chapter of your life, man. No, man, I'm excited for you. Like, I'm excited. Like, I was super stoked when I found out you got accepted to OHSU. And like, you're on the track too, man. And you're get that MD, get out there. You'll be done before you know it. Time flies. I know it feels like it doesn't. Like, you know, I always tell people like residency is like the, the days are long, but the weeks are short. Like you basically like, you know, the day takes forever, but all of a sudden you're like, what, it's Friday already? Like, when did it happen? So man, you'll get there. I'm, I'm excited for you. Like, I, I think I, I'll see some big stuff in your future, man. Thank you. Well, I have some, uh, you know, last couple of questions that I ask everyone, and especially for you, I'll ask one thing, which is kind of unique to you. Um, first of all is, uh, what is your favorite memory of residency? I think, I think my favorite memory in residency is my chief year. The time it was like my first time doing a tracheostomy as a chief. And I remember like it was, I was very apprehensive. I was very like nervous about it. I was leading the entire case. We have a surgeon here who is like, he's more hands off. Like if he trusts you as a surgeon, he won't even scrub the case. He'll just like kind of watch from the side. So it was an elective tracheostomy case. I remember like being super excited about it, like super nervous, did my research, my study. 
I was leading the senior through it and like, and, you know, walking through like step by step the anatomy, dissecting down. I remember getting like the, you know, everything went super smooth. Thank God. The trach went in beautifully. There was no concern, no issue. I remember, and I hate to say it, it's like a, a humble brag, but thank God. Like I, but like, I remember my the attendant came up to me and told me is like, you know, I've been doing this for like 40 years. He's like, that's like the cleanest, smoothest tracheostomy I've seen in my life. And it was so good to hear that, like halfway through my chief year, to realize, you know, all that hard work, the effort I put in on like not a very easy procedure to do, like that it all like paid off, you know, the studying, the, the time and the effort. So I would say to culminate all of this, because I have so many good memories, but I think that's the one that like kind of made me like the most excited about it was, uh, you know, it was, it was worth it. Where can people find you? I'm sure a lot of people want to connect with you and you're already a Instagram star. Uh, do you want to point them towards that? Yeah, so I actually, I, I, I've dabbled in social media and I actually really enjoy it. I think it's like one of the ways that I found that like people can really showcase their lives. That anything that honestly, just in general, social media has really become such an amazing tool to be, especially within the surgical field, just like showcase what you do. So for me, it's like I love connecting with anybody on there, whether it's interns, whether it's pre-dents, whether it's people trying to get neural surgery. You can find me on Instagram at Egyptian Surgeon. That's kind of my handle. Up there. I used to be, I remember in dental school, I was at the Dental Egyptian. And now I'm an Egyptian surgeon. So. You have to fit that surgeon in there. Yeah, exactly. You have to get the Egyptian surgeon. But uh, yeah, definitely find me on there because I, I love like interacting with people. I love asking questions, answering questions on the stuff there. Facebook, you can find me there too. Um, yeah, but honestly, like anyone who has any questions at all, like reach out. I love, love chatting about it. And I'm, like I said, I'm a very open guy. I'll tell you exactly how I feel about stuff. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. That's awesome, Sohai. What is your favorite OR music? Favorite OR music. Okay, this is good. So... And you know how it's funny, like every year, you know, like the surgeons, like if they're really old, they're like the 60s or like the 70s and stuff like that. Like I'll be the surgeon who loves the 2000s. Like for me, it's like whenever I get in there, we listen to uh, AccuRadio in the ORs because like, it's an old system. They can't hook up anything that's worthwhile there. But so for AccuRadio, I always go to 2000 hits. So I'm talking like, you know, Usher, like, uh, and, it, and it rotates through all of them. It's like Usher, Simple Plan, Blink-182, but then I'll go back to like, Nelly, Neo, it's like we're talking like the old, the old school days. So if you're a 90s baby, like in my opinion, I thought the 2000s was the best genre of music. So I love all that. You know, R&B, alternative rock, rap, like it's just a good time. Man, well, I wish I was in the OR with you. That's kind of the music that I would also vibe with. Well, Sohab, it was really good talking to you. Um, I really wish you the best and I wish you, you know, many blessings to your practice, to your future, and also your family, really. No, thank you, Marcus. That means a lot, bud. Yeah, man. Well, we'll have to connect again. Oh, definitely. I'm sure we will. We definitely will, man, for sure.